0: Good morning, you guys. It's good to see you guys this morning. If you guys have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. As you guys turn there, I want to let you guys know about, uh, one other quick announcement. Uh, coming in January, we're going to have a class that's going to begin again. It, for a couple years, it's gone away, but it's going to be returning. It's a class called Perspectives. And if you guys have heard about it at all before, if you haven't, it, essentially it's a class that's going to move through Monday nights in the spring that's all about God's heart for the nations and a biblical portrait as to what God is doing in the nations. And so, I'll tell you guys, uh, for both Marcy and I, as we were uh, students here at a and back in the day, Perspectives was going on, and it was one of the most really life-changing, paradigm-transforming uh, classes and Bible studies that I've ever been a part of. And so it's going to be returning after a couple years of being gone, and I'd highly encourage you guys to think about it. It's going to begin in January after the holidays on Monday nights, and so I just want it, to get it in front of you guys so y'all are aware of it. Just a, a really powerful class and a great chance just to uh, kind of have your eyes broadened in terms of missions, in terms of what God is doing the nations, just a really powerful class. On a completely different note and far more superficial, uh, Marcy and I last uh, yesterday did uh, Christmas card photos, and so uh, we uh, borrowed from some friends, uh, the Borskis, uh, their little uh, deer head, all right? Uh, if you guys can notice, the deer head actually isn't just a head, but it's actually on top of an entire stuffed body, and so we thought, why the heck not for Christmas this year take some photos with the deer head, all right? Um, that just has absolutely nothing to do with this morning, but I thought, why the heck not? It's kind of funny, all right? Um, but Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, all right? I know that's just weird, but awesome, okay? Um, <laughs> Hebrews 6 this morning. We're going to be in verses 9 to 20 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. Uh, I want you guys to follow along with me, and then I'll pray for us this morning. Writer of Hebrews tells us, verse, chapter 6, verse 9, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, I hope, both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We pray with me? Father, we give you great thanks this morning that your son, uh, Jesus, has entered into the veil. And that as he's entered into that place as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, we have a confidence and a hope in you. I hope that is an anchor in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the circumstances and the changing natures of life. We have confidence in one who is unchangeable. Uh, we give you thanks that you are the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, and that your nature, your activity is unchanging, that your purposes will not be thwarted, and that you will move human history to where you've called it to and where you've planned for it to go. And Father, I thank you this morning that your promises, as you've extended them, you will fulfill, apart from human condition, apart from human response. We give you thankfulness that our confidence in you is not regarding ourselves, but in guarding your character um, and your willingness to fulfill that which you promised. Father, I pray this morning, even as we sing, even as we finished up this morning, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to trust you more this morning, and that you would draw us nearer, and that you would cause us to uh, move even closer and, and have a greater confidence in you, in your person, in your promises, and in your purposes, Lord. Father, I pray that this morning that you would open our eyes, that you give us hearts that are responsive to you, Um, That you'd use me just as you see fit, and that you'd allow this time really to be powerful this morning in our lives. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. A lot of you guys may know this, but Marcy uh, works part-time as a pharmaceutical rep, and so she represents a pharmaceutical company and walks in uh, every few days, every week, uh, into doctor's offices and, and tries to inform, tries to train, tries to provide resources to doctors so as to better understand their drugs, to better understand and better know how to prescribe toward patients and their problems. Um, and one of the things that's really been fascinating, one of Marcy's main drugs is cholesterol drugs. And so she often interacts with cardiovascular uh, doctors, those that are dealing with patients who have had heart attacks. And one of the most frustrating and yet fascinating things is in that industry is watching patients who have had heart attacks that have been rushed to the hospital under emergency situations that came incredibly close to death and yet were rescued from that. What's been amazing is to watch that many of those patients are completely unwilling to change their lifestyle and even completely unwilling to take medication. People who have been on the very verge of death because of a lifestyle and sometimes because of choices have been completely unwilling to change. An audience and a set of patients who are absolutely familiar with the catastrophic consequences that come from some of their choices in their lifestyle. And yet they're completely unwilling to take a simple pill. They're completely unwilling to make some simple changes to diet and even add exercise. And the question is why? Why? Why are patients who've been on the very edge of death at times unwilling to completely make some basic changes in their lives that would save their life and prolong their life? Why is that? I was beginning to think this morning even uh, about those patients. Do you warn them more severely? Uh, do you yell at those kinds of patients even louder? Do you show them all kinds of graphics, statistics to convince them even more that their path and their direction in life is going to lead to death? <laughs> what do you do? How do you change that kind of patients? What, what do you do and, and what did that, does that person particularly need? This morning, I'm going to argue that in many regards, that kind of patient is a lot like the audience in Hebrews chapter 6 that we looked at last week, an audience that is down a, headed down a path toward inevitable doom and inevitable catastrophic consequences. And last week, we saw that the writer of Hebrews warned them as to where their path was taking them, and I think warned them quite severely as to what was a real possibility for that believing audience. Possibility that in many regards, they may, in a sense, cut short their spirituality, that their spiritual life may not continue to progress. And the writer of Hebrews says, you better watch out, you better wake up. Your path is leading down a really dangerous set of consequences. And we're going to see this morning in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 9 to 20 is the writer of Hebrews is going to now, in a sense, continue to address that problem but come at it from a very different angle. A same angle that I think a lot of doctors have to take with patients that are unwilling to change their lifestyle because what a lot of patients, and and I think often for you and I, what we need more of is not more warning. (laughs) not more yelling, all right? We don't need to have graver consequences sometimes laid out So that's What we often need in our lives is just a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of affirmation that God is doing things in our life and that he's wanting to do even more. And the writer of Hebrews comes here in chapter 6 and he's going to bring some encouragement to them. That on the heels of an incredibly drastic warning that we looked at last week, I don't really have time to back, uh, unpack again this morning. I encourage you guys to look back last week at a really a challenging passage you can get by podcast in which the writer of Hebrews really warned his audience that if they continued down a path that they were on, in some regards, God might not continue to allow them to mature spiritually in their life. And if that was the case, what would happen is that their significance of their life would be wasted. The quality of their life would be destroyed. And in some cases, the duration of their life it could be cut short. And so what the writer for Hebrews is going to do after last week bringing incredible warning to them, he's going to circle back around and provide them some encouragement. And he's going to help, in a sense, I think, lift their confidence and help build their encouragement because really what they needed was not someone yelling even louder at them, but really what they needed was someone to come alongside and bring some encouragement. And I think for a lot of us who maybe were wrestling and struggling with sin, and we think, man, I know the consequences of these decisions, but I really what I need to really break out of that is some encouragement and confidence that I can <laughs> Maybe some of you guys in many regards are just kind of curious about spirituality, curious about the Bible, curious about Jesus. And the question that we're going to hit this morning is, what does confidence in Jesus look like? It's a theme that I think is going to hit us no matter where we are this morning, whether you've just begun to wrestle and begin to think about who Jesus is, whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and been doing all the right things and yet life still is not turning out like you want it to. And for a lot of us, the question of confidence is really vital as we wrestle and as we walk through the book of Hebrews. I'm going to give you guys a few glimpses because this idea of confidence is woven throughout the book of Hebrews. it's going to really be unpacked for us this morning in our passage, but it's a theme and a thread that's been woven out throughout the tapestry of this great book so far. Even in chapter 3, verses 6 and 14, we find, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Notice their willingness and their ability to continue on with Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution, in the midst of adversity, was largely, in a sense, going to pivot around the continuance and the building up of their confidence and their assurance in Jesus. In fact, later on in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we find on the heels of probably the most drastic warning passage in chapter 6, on the heels of that, again, comes the writer with confidence. Uh, Speaking of, of that theme, he says this, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that you may receive what was promised. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The writer of Hebrews here in chapter 6 and, in, and throughout the entirety of this book is going to hit this idea of confidence. Our confidence in Jesus, even when life goes down the pot, is largely critical to whether you and I continue with Jesus. When suffering comes, when trials come, when life doesn't turn out the way we want it to, the question is, are we going to remain confident in Jesus? Are we going to be confident that he is who he said he is and he's going to do what he said he'll do? Are we confident in him because that confidence is largely detrimental or largely determinative of where you and I head and whether you and I stay with Jesus, whether we finish our spiritual lives well. That's really going to be the theme in Hebrews chapter six. And that's really where the writer of Hebrews is going to go to an audience that's going to be in the midst of discouragement. He's going to try to help lift their confidence and lift their encouragement. I thought even this morning um, or this week in particular, if if you think back to first century disciples and apostles, remember after Jesus is crucified, what do they do? (laughs) They bail on Jesus, right? They hide, they run off, they they find the best rock, the biggest rock that they can hide under so no one will notice, right? But what happens? Resurrection of Jesus, they then see a resurrected, risen Jesus, and all of a sudden their confidence is lifted, and all of a sudden their lives and their pattern and their choices go 180 degrees the other direction. Hebrews 6, I think for many of us, is going to be confidence for a post-resurrection set of believers. For you and I, we don't get the privilege of seeing a resurrected Jesus Christ, but I think Hebrews 6 is going to do all it can for you and I to have confidence that it's going to be rooted in Jesus Christ. Notice, though, how the writer of Hebrews does this. Hebrews 6, really, verses 9 to 12, I think are going to help unpack for us as the writer is going to try to restore the confidence of his audience. An audience that was down a path that had really terrifying possibilities, he's going to come along and, I think, try to lift their spirits, lift their encouragement and their confidence. Notice how he does it, though. He's going to first start out in verse 9 with uh, an encouragement that while there's a terrifying possibility of the future, their prospects are promising. Notice he says in verse 9, right on the heels of that great warning in in verses uh, 1 to 8 of chapter 6, he says, But beloved, those that we love, those that are beloved of Jesus Christ, we are confident of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Even though there's a terrifying possibility that exists for you, but We really are ultimately, though, confident that you will not fall to that possibility. You know, I think in many regards, for those that are discouraged, for those that are heading down a path toward horrific consequences, really what people really need is just some encouragement and that their prospects and that what God can do in their life can turn things around. I've told you guys before, probably my greatest fear in life, all the way from childhood, college, and even in seminary, was public speaking, all right? so. Uh, this activity, uh, for me, was something I never envisioned and wanted to avoid at all costs, all right, as I walked with the Lord. Um, and I got to seminary, the first preaching class I ever took, the first sermon I ever had to give, I cannot tell you how absolutely uh, horrific it went, okay? Um, I had, uh, in terms of public speaking, I hated it so much and was so scared of it that I would often not be able to sleep the night before. I couldn't eat for days, all right, leading up to it, all right, it was, it was not a pleasant experience and process for me, Okay. Uh, And through seminary, the first sermon I ever had to give in my first preaching class that I could not avoid because of my degree plan, um, I worked on it, worked on it, and then the night before, I gave it uh, three times to Marcy, all right, because I really wanted some feedback, all right, and I was so insecure, I kept giving it and giving it, and by the third time, she fell asleep, okay, (laughs) Um, which wasn't always way encouraging, but it was the third time, so bless her heart, and it was midnight, okay? Uh, Second of all, that next morning I get up, and, and in seminary you have about 12 students, and then behind those students is a glass wall, all right? There's a video camera on the one side as you're giving a talk, and there's a professor to the right of the video camera who is recording audibly criticisms on top of your video recording, all right? And he's taking notes, critiquing everything you're doing, all right? And you can't hear him, or you can see him, though. And so as I'm giving this talk, he's critiquing, and he's saying a lot, and he's writing a lot, and it's not going well, all right? Um, and it was uh, me and two other students who gave a talk that morning, and then afterwards, what they typically did in classes, is we all kind of got together and encouraged each other and criticized each other and gave each other some helpful feedback. What happened to me, though, as I sat down I thought, man, that was horrible, but at least I'm done, right? Um, and so at least, no matter what they say about me, at least I don't have to do this again, and I'm done. Um, unfortunately, we talked to the other two guys, and then my professor asked me to get back up and start my talk again from the beginning, all right? Um, And to make a long story short, he started and restarted, started, stopped me, and restarted me 10 different times, all right, Um, because I had issues with my hands, I had issues with my voice, I had all kinds of problems, all right, and he wanted me to work on those in front of every single person, all right. By the time that morning was over, I felt stripped down, naked, and beat up. Uh, the students were laughing at me. The professor made an example out of me. I didn't need more criticism. In fact, I was quite clear about how bad I was and, and, and how quickly and easily I could flop and fail, all right? And so as I kind of moved on from there, really what I needed to move on from that was not more criticism and more constructive feedback, Right? Really what I needed was someone to come along and say, you know what, I've seen God doing some things in your life, and I'm confident that he's going to continue to do some things as you move forward. In fact, the guy who discipled me throughout college actually was that person. He said, hey, I don't care what happened in your class. I've seen God working in your life, and I'm confident of what God's going to be doing in your life, and so keep pressing forward. For me to press forward, I didn't need more criticism. I didn't need the consequences of of continuing on to be made more gray for me. What I needed to have was just someone who believed in me, all right? And I had that. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is going to do for his audience is be that person for them. And he's going to say, hey, I believe in you in light of a a reality that is possible and terrifying, I don't think that's going to come true for you guys. I'm confident because I've seen God moving in your past. In fact, that's what you're going to see in verse 10. He's going to say, I'm not confident because there's some fluffy feel-good thing, but I've seen God moving in your life in verse 10. And he says this, For God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Notice what he says. He says, hey, I'm confident in you because I've seen God doing something in you in your past. God has been working, and He's going to continue to work. In fact, not only has He worked and produced fruit in your life, but that fruit God is not going to forget, and He's going to reward you for it. And so continue to press on, even in the midst of the pressure, and in the midst of the adversity that you're facing, even though you're doing all the right things, and yet life is not turning out the right way. Continue to press forward, because God is doing something in you, and He's going to continue to do that. In fact, he says next on, he's going to say the other reason why he's so confident is that to avoid their situation, to avoid the consequences, there's a really simple solution. It's not just that their pro- prospects are promising. It's not just that they have a lot of former feats, but the solution to avoid the situation in the future is incredibly simple. Notice what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith And patience, inherit the promises. What was the simple solution? What did he want them to do? Ultimately, all he wanted them to do was just try to work a little harder and try to wait a little longer. Ultimately, he says, hey, don't be lazy. And don't think that God is going to do everything immediately in your life, but continue to pull closer to him, continue to work at your spiritual life, and continue to wait on him. If you'll work hard and if you'll wait on him, then you can avoid the consequences that we talked about in the previous week. He says... Ultimately, the solution was really, really simple. One of my favorite comedians uh, has a bit on, he talks about the crime of uh, loitering. He goes, I don't understand why that is a crime. It's one of the most ridiculous crimes around, all right? Any crime that you can remedy with, hey, why don't you just move along, probably isn't that big of a crime, right? Uh, and And he contrasts that with manslaughter, all right? When you slaughter a man, all right, that is a serious crime, all right, compared to Loitering, right? Anything that you can remedy with a simple solution really isn't that big of a problem, and it's a problem that surely can be avoided. And so the writer Hebrew says, hey, in the midst of what's a terrifying possibility in the future, the solution is really simple. I want you guys just to try to work hard, continue to put effort into your spiritual life, continue to be disciplined, don't be lazy and try to wait on God. He's gonna move and he's gonna work, but it may not be on your timing. He says, hey, wait. The problem though for those who lack encouragement and for those who lack confidence in God. It's really hard to continue to work at their spiritual life and it's really hard to continue to wait on him, right? If if you're struggling in your confidence in God, it's at times really, really hard to wait on him, That he's going to move because you lack confidence that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. So what the writer of Hebrews says next, he's going to provide them an award, a reward that, that will motivate them to continue to work hard and will motivate them to continue to wait. Notice he says at the end of 12 that you should not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you will be faithful and if you will have patience, you will inherit the promises. And he's going to immediately move to an example of one who had faith and who had patience and who inherited the promises, and that's Abram. As their confidence is restored, what he's going to want to do for them is remodel it after someone else. So notice what he says, verses 13 to 15. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Notice Abraham's going to be the model for their confidence to be patterned after. Here's what he wants them to do. He wants them to model uh, the lifestyle of Abram. I love that he's going to run to Abraham here because Abraham's example in the narrative story of Abraham in Genesis 12 to Genesis 22 is so classically rich. You see some of the most amazing moments in Abraham's life, but you also see him flame out and bottom out and fail really badly. And so it makes a narrative story or a storyline of an individual that I, hey, I can really identify with. Abraham, God's going to come to Abraham in Genesis 11 and 12, and he's going to say, hey, I want you to leave your country and your family and your relatives because I want to do something in your life that you will not imagine. In fact, we find in Hebrews 11, the writer picks this up, and he says in chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God said, hey, I want you to leave your country, and I want you to leave your family, and I want you just to take off. He had no idea where he was going, and he had no idea what God ultimately and fully wanted to do with him, but he just called him and said, I want you to leave. The thing I love, though, as the writer of Hebrews praises Abraham here uh, in Hebrews 11, it's classic because the first time God comes and calls Abraham, he doesn't respond in obedience. He doesn't completely leave. He leaves for a little while, but then he settles, and he does not continue to travel. And in fact, he does not leave his family at all. He stays with his family. He, He doesn't absolutely correctly and fully obey God at all. In fact, he doesn't trust God fully at all. God's going to have to come a second time, and then he's going to come, and then Abraham will more fully obey. And so even for Abraham, what we're going to see in the storyline of Genesis is that Abraham's confidence as he began was incredibly weak. Abraham's confidence in who God was and what God would do and whether Abraham believed that was growing as you move through the story of Abraham. Abraham's going to have some great moments. In Genesis 12, he's going to get the promises of God. God says, hey, I want to give you a land. I want to give you a ton of descendants. I want to make a nation out of you, and I want to bless your name and make you great. And God promises this nobody out of nowhere, and he promises them everything. And he's going to give them everything and to make everything, a whole nation out of him that's going to bless the entirety of the nations and the world. In fact, missions really begins Genesis 12, verse 3. God's going to use Abraham to bless the nations because what God is wanting to do is move through the entirety of the world and establish his kingdom and establish his name and his glory amongst all of the nations. And he starts that with Abraham. And though, as you get in Abraham, Genesis 12, God promises, hey, I want to give you all kinds of descendants. I want to do all kinds of things in you. But immediately after that, a famine hits. And guess what Abraham does? He freaks out, all right? He goes down to Egypt and if you guys know the story in Genesis 12, uh, even though God has said, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to make a nation out of you, I'm going to use you to bless all the families of the earth, he gets into his first little pot of hot water and he just folds his cards and he backs out and he doesn't trust God. In fact, he sells out his wife. He says that my wife is my sister because if they think she's my wife, they'll kill me. So he just bails on his wife and he bails on God, all right? Uh, Immediately after that, though, he has a great moment. He destroys a, a whole bunch of kings and then God reaffirms yet again to him, hey, You dummy, I'm going to do a lot of things through you. Hang with me. And then a chapter later, guess what happens? The dummy then falls short yet again, and, and he doesn't have a kid yet, and guess what? He takes a female slave in his house in order to have a kid, thinking that's what God wants to do, which we find out later, no, 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 that's not what God wants to do. That's taking a shortcut on God's promises and his purposes, and then God comes back to him and affirms to him, God, Abraham has a good moment. He gets circumcised. Circumcision becomes a sign of what God wants to do with the people of Abraham. But then again, later on, right before he gets this son Isaac, he goes back, and in Genesis 20 he makes the same mistake that he made in Genesis 12 and he makes Sarah and lies about Sarah and he says that she's my sister because he wants to survive and he's afraid he's going to die all right Throughout the storyline of Abraham, we have a great model of someone that we could identify with. All right? He's got some great moments. He's got some really horrific moments. But as we walk through, we see Abraham does things we would never have imagined. In fact, his final test, his final exam really comes in Genesis 21-22. The writer of Hebrews picks up and in Hebrews 11 as we find that Abraham does things that are unimaginable. All right? He takes off when he has no idea where he's going, and he's going to also offer up his only son. Hebrews 11, we find the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. There's no way Abraham would have ever seen this ever exemplified or modeled, all right? Abraham just takes in faith that if God had called him to offer up his own son, then surely he could resurrect the dead, and he would. Abraham believes and he follows through and he obeys when it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. In fact, what's really fascinating to me is not just that Abraham will obey when it makes no sense. Whether it's at the beginning or it's at the end of the Abraham narrative, but even in between, not only is he faithful, but he waits a really long time. From Genesis 12 to 21, when he gets Isaac, he has waited at least 25 years. God had made a promise to him that he waits for 25 years before it's ever fulfilled and ever uh, realized in his life. You and I are having a hard time waiting even just for a month for a date, right? <laughs> or yet a, yet a girlfriend or yet a wife or a husband. We want to get married. Different things that we want in our, wait and want in our lives. We offer a prayer requests. And yet, can you imagine if it took 25 years for God to fulfill in your life what you've been wanting and waiting on Him to do? It takes 25 years. He finally gets it. And then when Isaac is likely 14 years old, then God comes and says, I want you to sacrifice your son the one I've promised to you, the one I'm going to give to you. And Abraham says, okay. (laughs) That's unbelievable. That is a, a man who had a confidence in God in the midst of his successes and his failures that was growing the more and more he knew God and the more and more he knew who God was and what God would do. He was so confident in who God was that he was confident that God could do anything on the basis of his nature and his character And so what Abraham is going to get because of his faithfulness and because of his patience is God is going to fulfill his promises to Abram in his lifetime. And yet for you and I, sometimes what God wants to do in our lifetime won't be fulfilled in our lifetime. So how in the world is that an encouragement to us? Hebrews eleven thirteen will say that many died in faith without receiving the promises. And so there were a lot in Hebrews 11, as you get this great example, this great laundry list of those who had great faith. Abraham got to see the fulfillment of God's promises to him in his lifetime. Some of the promises, but not all of God's promises to him. And there were many through Hebrews 11 who had great faith, but did not see God fulfill to, to those people who had great faith, the promises God had for them in their lifetime. So the question is, how in the world do you and I have confidence in a God who may not fulfill his promises in our lifetime? If we cannot see the fulfillment of what God wants to do in our lifetime, then how in the world do our, does our confidence find root? Really, I think what the rite of Hebrews is going to do in verses 16 and 20 is provide us the root, the foundation, that which holds our confidence. It has to be bigger than us. It has to be bigger than our life. And the writer of Hebrews, I think, is going to unpack that for us in verses 16 and 20. Notice what he says. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given and its confirmation is an end of every dispute. He's referring back to what happened in verse 14 when it says that God told Abraham, surely I will bless you and I will surely multiply you. After God sacrifices Isaac and God uh, provides a lamb in, in Isaac's place uh, and God sees Abraham's amazing faith, God reaffirms yet again with an oath saying, hey, I told you what I was going to do. I already made promises to you for us in a sense 10 chapters earlier. And because you've had such a great faith, because you've been waiting on me, surely you're going to see my fulfillment of the things I've promised to you. And in fact, in many regards, verses 14 is a big fat, I told you so, to Abraham. In the midst of Abraham's weak and wooly and and, at times faltering faith, when he finally comes through and he he has faith and he has patience, God says, see, I told you I was going to do this. He would just wait on me. and He would just trust me. And as his trust had been building, he got to see that for himself. And so what, what really happens is not only do you get a promise, but you get a confirmation of the promise. And that's what he's going to describe here as he goes on. He says in verse 17, In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. You have a promise and you have an oath. You have a promise that I'm going to do something and you have an oath that says, See, I told you I was going to do it. You idiot. All right? Um, going on. Uh, verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Verse 18, let me read that again. Check this out. Notice this is the point. This is the point for you and I. This is the point for Abraham. That by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. For this audience, they had all kinds of things happening and swirling around them. Their lives were at stake. Their property was being taken. Life was not going happy-go-lucky. It was not easy to walk with Christ. It was incredibly difficult to remain confident that God, or Christ was who he said he was and he was going to do what he said he'd do because life was spinning out of control and it was incredibly painful and it's coming at a lot of cost. So their confidence was being shaken. And he says, look, hey, here's how you can know you can trust God. Not only does he make promises, but he confirms them with an oath. But even more so, you worship and you know and you trust a God who cannot lie. We worship a God who cannot lie. And I know that seems absolutely basic and you're going, okay, Trey, I get that. But the reality is that one of the things I want to show you guys this morning is that a lot of people worship a God who's not like that, all right? You and I worship a God who is of a nature and his nature controls and restrains how he can act. We worship a God we can know because he's revealed himself as he is. And because his nature determines what he does, we always know how he will act. This is always in accordance with his nature. And so even though life is spinning out of control, things are not going as I planned, I begin to wonder is God good? Because he always acts in accordance with his nature, I can have confidence that he's good. He never acts contrary to his nature, so he cannot make a promise and then lie. Because God is truth, He's light, He is not deceptive, He is always plain, He is always true to what He's communicated. One of the things I want to show you guys, and this is going to be a completely different aside, but it was something that I caught this week at a conference that just fascinated me. All right? I had a speaker who was talking about the nature of God in Islam, and what I want to do for you guys is show you the nature and the activity of God, Allah, in Islam as a comparison point for you and I to have even greater confidence in the God of the Bible and the God that we worship and the God that we're called to trust. Notice what a commentator says regarding Islam and the God of Islam. Can you and I find confidence in Islam? Uh, commentator Al-Razi, who is, who is Islamic, writes and says this about their theology of God in Islam. He says, it is possible, according to our religion, that God may send blasphemers to paradise and the righteous and worshipers to eternal life because ownership belongs to him and no one can stop him. Within Islam, within their view of God, you have a God who is not constrained in his activity by his nature. You have a God that can choose to do whatever he wants because his defining attribute is his power. It is a God who has a set of attributes that's always contrary at times to one another. So at times he might be merciful, but at times he might be wrathful. And what determines his wrath and his mercy is not his nature or, or a character, but it is his prerogative and his will to do whatever he wants. His the God of Islam's activity is always determined by his will and not by his nature. The activity of the God of the Bible is, a, is an activity that is always determined by the nature of God, not the will of God. God's will is determined and stems out of his essence and out of his nature. Even more so, let me give you guys another example. And this was fascinating to me. Uh, a guy writes, Every time the Quran states a definite promise or constant law, It follows it with a statement implying that the divine will, the will of Allah, is free of all limitations and restrictions, even those based on a promise of Allah or law of His. For His will is absolutely beyond any promise or law. So in the Quran, God can come along, Allah can come along and say whatever He wants, but then He can still do whatever He wants. So even though in the Quran, God might extend a promise to you, He is at no liberty and He's not required at all to fulfill that. So you could think you're going to heaven and in fact He could send you to hell. Or you could be going to hell, but he could send you to heaven just because he wants to. You have a God in Islam that is not constrained by his nature. Therefore, you have a God that you cannot know, and you have a God you cannot trust. You sure as heck ought to be fearful because you don't know what he's going to do. And yet for you and I, as a touch point and as a comparison, I think it's really helpful because we worship a God who's not like that. We worship a God who is constrained by his nature in accordance with the ways that he works. If he's made a promise because his character is holy, righteous, and just and that he cannot lie, therefore you can take his promise to the bank. He will not forsake it. He will always fulfill it, and he will always carry it about, no matter what we often see or often feel or often think about the circumstances of our lives. It is the nature of God that gives us such confidence and such root in the God that we worship and the God that we're called to trust. He always acts in accordance with his nature, and since we can know his nature, we can also know how he's going to act, and therefore we can have confidence in that God. That is a God that you do not see in Islam, and that's a God that you often don't see in a lot of other religions, all right? So, notice what he's going to do next, though. For you and I who don't have necessarily the opportunity to always see the fulfillment of God's promises in our lifetime, how in the world do we root our hope? Notice verses 19 and 20, speaking of this hope, he says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice, what is our hope attached to? Abraham's hope was attached to a God who had extended promises that he was confident would fulfill those promises. And it was Abraham trying to figure that out in the midst of the narrative from Genesis 12 to 22. There are moments that he trusted God, there are moments that he didn't. But in the midst of his successes, in the midst of his failures, his confidence in God and how God would act and how God would move and who God was was growing. But for you and I, where is our confidence rooted and attached to? It is primarily attached to Jesus Christ, which is why he says that Jesus, in a sense, is our anchor of the soul, our hope that is both sure and steadfast, because Jesus has entered into the heavenlies. He died and resurrected, therefore he sits, as we looked at throughout the book of Hebrews, at the right hand of God. We worship one who is crucified and yet resurrected. We worship one who is absent yet will return. Why? Because he told us he would. We worship one who, who had died, but he said, if you will trust me, you will not die. You will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Why? Not because I'll ever see that in my lifetime until I die. But in death, I have confidence that I won't hold me because I saw one who was not held by it. Abraham believed that God could resurrect the dead. And yet we see it in Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. One who died and yet was resurrected. And because of that, completely reoriented the first century disciples. And men who were hiding out, but men who would then charge headlong into martyrdom, headlong into proclamation about this Jesus Christ because he was crucified and resurrected. You know, I was thinking this week, you know, that in many cases, as you hear stories of those who've been taken hostage, you hear stories of those who are suffering immensely in a prison cell or in a hostage situation or because of some chronic criminal activity. One of the threads you often hear in those people is that their confidence to endure that was rooted in reunion of those that they loved. It was a reunion with one who they loved, one a child, a spouse, a parent that enabled them to endure. And I think for the first century church, it was their confidence in a reunion with Jesus Christ that allowed them to endure even to the point of martyrdom. All right. In fact, you're going to find this imagery of, of the anchor really throughout the first century church. This is a picture of in one of the tombs in the Roman uh, catacombs where a lot of the first century Christians in Rome died. Many who were martyred for their faith and they were buried in this place in hiding. And if you can see it, you can, it's kind of barely on, on the left of the inscriptions. You see what looks like an anchor. Interesting enough, at the top of the picture of the anchor is also a line going across. And what these people were doing, not just with the fish in the, uh, pictures that were denoting their faith in Christ, but also with the anchor. And then at the top of the anchor, the line going across to note and also to hide the image of the cross a bit. You have the picture of the cross with an anchor. and The idea of being, even in death, I have one who has anchored me to life. One who will endure me beyond the grave. And so I have confidence in him. In fact, I think for those who were martyred in their faith, first century church, they weren't just confident in one who would deliver them from the grave, but they were confident in one who would give them not just eternal life, but even reward for their faithfulness and what God could do and what he said he'd do. I want to kind of wrap up this morning. I want to ask you just a simple question this morning, and that's how confident are you this morning in Jesus Christ? How confident are you this morning in Jesus Christ? For some of y'all, you may not know and you may not even have a relationship at all with Jesus Christ. And so, of course, you're not that confident in Him. You're just checking Him out, kicking the tires maybe, right? Uh, I, I want to encourage you guys, as you, as you wrestle with Him, uh, you've got to let the Scripture speak for what it says who He is and what it says that He did. You've got to take Him in His miracles and you've got to take Him in His teaching. You've got to take Him in His uh, teaching and you've got to take Him in His ministry. You've got to take Him all and swallow Him whole just as the Scriptures proclaim Him. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, you can't just take him as a teacher. You've got to, you can't just take him as a, a great man. You've got to take him either as a demon or as the son of God. You cannot divorce his miracles and his supernaturalness and his divinity from his teaching. He's not just a moral teacher because if he said the things that he said and they weren't true, then he's either a liar or he's just crazy. Right? He said that he was God the flesh, which is why he got crucified. The Romans didn't like it that he thought he was a king. The Jews didn't like it that they thought that he thought he was God. And so both agreed together and they crucified him on a cross, a cross and a death and a life that were all real that we get from Jewish historical records and a resurrection that's really hard to argue with. And if he was died and if he was resurrected, then the question is, who is he? And if he is who he says he is, then we have confidence that he will do what he says he'll do. In many regards, if you're not sure how confident you are in Jesus Christ this morning, I think a great place to look at it, a great place to examine your own self is how faithful and how patient are you in Him. In the midst of the circumstances of your life, what motivates you, what continues to push you forward to continue to walk with Him as He's called you to, even when it comes at a cost, (laughs) even when you're doing all the right things, even when you're, in a sense, pursuing God, and yet life is spinning in ways and moving in directions that you don't want. The question is, are you confident in Him? Or is your confidence beginning to be shaken? And now what you need is not more grave warning, but really what you and I need at times is not a greater clarity as to the consequences of our sin that Jesus Christ has dealt with on the cross. But what we need is confidence, not just that he's paid the penalty for our sin, but that he can redeem us from that and that life change is possible. That he's not just redeemed us to seal us up and get us to heaven, but he's redeemed us so that he can begin to work in our lives and restore us and change us because he wants to do far more in us than just get us to heaven. He wants us to be salt and light on the earth. He wants us to be representatives of Him. And the question is, how confident are you in Him? Are you pursuing Him even when it comes at a cost, even when it comes at ridicule? What costs are you willing to pay in your pursuit of Him? Because it is your confidence in Him that is often shown in your costs that you're willing to pay. It's your confidence in Him that's often shown in your patience and your willingness to wait on Him, to provide and to fulfill His promises, as He said. And before we take shortcuts like Abraham did with Hagar, we take shortcuts like Abraham did in Egypt, for you and I, the great question as we walk with him, even as life doesn't turn out like we think it's going to, the question is, what has Christ promised us? And then do we believe that he'll do that as he's promised it? I think a great application for a lot of us this morning is uh, something that I was beginning to do a little bit in college, and is creating a catalog of God's promises to you and I. What are the things that God has actually promised to us I think a lot of times our confidence has been built on false foundation because some of the things that our culture and some of the things that the churches that are really popular in our day and time are saying are not true. <laughs> They're promises of things that God has actually not extended to us. In fact, if you were uh, in big church this morning and looking at 1 Peter, and you've been in big church this, this semester and looking at the book of First Peter that we walked through a couple years ago in here, uh, the great reality of First Peter is that you have an audience who's suffering mightily. All right, God has not promised you and I that we always be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Although that sure sells a lot of books, and it sure sounds fun, and I sure like the sound of that, ultimately it's hard to read a book like 1 Peter and and still hold that when he says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you. And that fire is not one that's happy, healthy, wealthy, and lucky, all right? The reality for our lives is that as we walk with Jesus Christ, it will come at a cost. But the question is, are we willing to pay that cost in light of a reward that's coming in confidence of one who will return and who will remember our works and will reward us for those In fact, I think as the early church had images of the anchor, here's another one for you, not just of the cross at the top, but of the anchor itself with the fish to the side. Uh, You get a picture, or actually those might be feet, I'm not sure. Uh, You get a picture though of, I think they weren't just confident and they didn't just have an anchor in that uh, God would have provided them life after the grave, that God would provide them eternal life. I think that anchor was also a sign in the midst of the sufferings of life. It's not just that God would deliver them out of those, but that ultimately God would reward them as well for the cost that they paid. I think as you look through the scriptures, you get a sense that it's not just that you and I are motivated that God will fulfill his promises to us, but there are some promises that are conditional, that as we obey, we'll receive an added reward in light of and alongside of eternal life, that God wants to do more for us than just give us insurance from hell, so to speak. And so I think the first century church got that, and so they pressed on, they, they endured greatly in order to trust Jesus Christ because they were confident that him who was crucified was resurrected. They were confident that him who was absent would be returned. They were confident of a kingdom that would come and a priest who was sitting not just as a priest offering sacrifices like a human priest did year after year, but one who had entered into the veil at the right hand of God, reigning from heaven over a kingdom that will one day come and be reestablished. I think that was the confidence of the early church. I think that's our confidence as well, that God is who he said he is in his word and that he's going to do what he said he'll do. The question is, are we sure what he said he's going to do? Do we have any idea of the promises of God and what he's told us that he's going to do in our lives? Or are there times are we building our confidence off of false promises and things that we're actually not really sure that he's promised us? So I think a great application for a lot of us is just to create a catalog of promises. As you begin to walk through Bible studies, as you're beginning to walk through and read through the word of God, keeping a little journal and listing out reference and promise. What is it that God has promised you and I for those that have faith in Jesus Christ? I think it's a great exercise. And so let me pray for us and close this up this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks uh, that not just that you've left us in the dark, but that you've revealed yourself to us through your word, uh, that we can know you, that you aren't just absent and even in your sovereignty, even in your mystery, even in the things that we cannot grasp, yet you've come near and you've revealed yourself in the ways that we can grasp, that we can know you. We can know your attributes. We can know your nature, your essence. And in light of that, I'm confident, I'm thankful that we can know how you'll move and how you'll act. That we can have a confidence of your intervention Then we can have a confidence of your return. That we can have confidence of what you're going to do in our life. Father, I pray that you would continue to bolster that, that you continue to grow that in us. And Father, in the midst of the places in our lives and the places that we're beginning to doubt you, Father, I pray that you'd come not with warning, but you'd come with encouragement and that you're moving, that you're working in our lives, and that you have things in store for us more than just heaven and eternal life, but you're wanting to restore, you're wanting to transform, you're wanting to use us for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you'd give us that great encouragement and that great confidence to draw near to you, to continue to wait on you even when it doesn't look like you're present, even when you're absent, even when you're silent seemingly, even when you're you're slow to move, you're slow to act. Father, I pray that you'd give us confidence in your nature and your character, your purposes and your promises, that you're good, and that you're at work, even when we cannot see it. Father, I ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. guys, thanks for being here this morning. We will not see you guys next Sunday, but we would love to see you guys here in a few minutes at C&J's. Some delicious barbecue. All right, we'll see you guys there. Thanks for coming.